Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Hal Goodwin's The Lost City, Volume 5, Chapter 13, Dead End. Zircon looked from the old maps to the new ones. I don't know what to say, he sighed. From what Chada has told us, it would be wiser to take this new course. Wise spoke up. I think the evidence is no longer circumstantial, Hobart. Von Groot changed the maps. We shall take the new trail. Rick and Scotty nodded assent. Zircon rose and said, Well, if it's agreed that we're going to change our course, I'd better inform Samid. He walked over to where the bearers were just finishing breakfast. The boys started breaking camp, rolling up their sleeping bags and those of the scientists. Then Rick noticed a disturbance among the bearers. Now what's wrong? he asked. The Zircon and Samid were face to face, and the giant guide was waving his arms furiously. It was evident he did not agree with the decision to change course. We better lend a hand, Scotty said. This beggar is being difficult, Zircon told them when they came up to him. Samid waved a ham-like hand in the new direction. Bad, much bad, no go, Weiss pointed to the trail they had been following. Where does this trail go? Go Tengiboo, Samid declared. Weiss pointed in the direction of the path they were to take. And where does this one go? Samid shrugged. I don't think he knows, the little professor said flatly. I doubt he has ever been to Tengiboo, otherwise he wouldn't insist on taking what is obviously the wrong way. No wonder the trail was so rough. This is the last straw, Zircon bellowed. Do you mean to say that this beggar lied just to get a job? Um, Professor, maybe he was planted, Rick suggested. Zircon thought about it. I don't see how he could have been. We picked him ourselves. Did we? Weiss demanded. Could we very well have chosen anyone else the way he dominated the crowd? Samid had been staring impassively, his arms folded. Zircon faced him. Well, whoever he's been working for, he's going our way now, said Zircon grimly. He pointed in the direction of the new course. We're going that way, Samid. Samid didn't move. He spoke a guttural order. As one man, the bearers sat down. They were refusing to go on. We're moving! Zircon said. He took the lead line of the first yak. Rick jumped to help, and they began lashing the animals together, head to tail. Samid's composure broke. He stepped forward and snarled something in his own tongue, and the bearers got to their feet. Zircon smiled. I didn't think they'd sit quietly if we started to take the animals and all their food. Samid was bent slightly, his big fists clenched. His face was hard and his eyes glittered. Look at him, Rick whispered. He's not going to let us move. Zircon whirled to face the big man, and the jacket on the professor's broad shoulders bunched as he lifted his arms. No, Hobart, Weiss said hoarsely. Then Scotty walked up. He had gone to the rear of the caravan while they were talking and now held his rifle carelessly in one hand. At the sight of the weapon, Samid's face changed. Scotty held out a ration tin to Rick. Put a rock in it. And throw it in the air, he invited. 
Rick stooped and picked up a stone, dropped it into the can to give it some weight. Then, making sure that all eyes were on him, he threw it with all his strength, far up and out. Scotty watched with seeming idleness as the can arced into the air. Then, miraculously, the rifle was at his shoulder. It barked once, and the can stopped its downward plunge and jerked upward. The rifle spoke again, and the can jerked once more. Scotty lowered the rifle, and the can fell down the slope. The muzzle was pointed in the general direction of Samid. We're going, Samid, Scotty ordered. There was no doubt in his tone. The guide turned slowly and spoke to the bearers. In a moment, they swung off onto the new trail. Rick took a deep breath. Nice going, he said hoarsely. Weiss patted Scotty's shoulder silently. Well, now we know the language these brutes understand, Zircon said. He walked to the head of the caravan, map in hand. Chada, who had not said a word during the entire scene, grinned now and sighed in relief. Now Samid knows who is boss, he exulted. But he doesn't like it, Rick observed. We will watch Samid close, the Hindu boy advised. Scotty slipped the safety catch on the rifle and smiled. Well, I'm going to be right behind him from now on. The caravan traveled southward with Zircon and Weiss watching the map and Samit closely. They were off the trail for long hours until they picked up a wider path that coincided with a secondary route on the new map. Within a day, they would reach the well-defined route the Geographical Union had specified. When they camped for the night, the four white men took turns on guard, Scotty's rifle in their hands. But there was not so much as a word from Samid that night nor in the days that followed. They were now 12,000 feet up. Chada was the first to notice the drowsiness that made everyone feel as though they were sleepwalking. The air seemed as thin as gossamer in their straining lungs. Their minds couldn't seem to take hold of ideas or conversation, and their tongues stumbled on words. Weiss suffered most, and they were forced to call many rest periods on his account. Oxygen starvation. Zircon told them. I told you it would be pretty fierce up here. As the sun started to dip into a cleft in the mountains one evening, Rick realized they had traveled less than three miles that entire day. Pilots wear oxygen masks at this height, Scotty said. Where are ours? Rick grinned. You'll be wanting piggyback rides next. The altitude record is 50,000. No, 60,000 feet, Chada said vaguely. They laughed at the boy's remark. It was the first time he had ever been in doubt about anything from his almanac. We'll have to give you artificial respiration pretty soon, Scotty teased the Hindu boy. Rick plodded on for long minutes before he spoke again. This weak feeling could be an awful nuisance if Jojo decided to get tough. He pointed ahead to Samid. He won't. Not with this behind him, Scotty said. He patted the cold metal of his rifle. When they came to a clearing in the trail, Zircon called back that this was to be their encampment for the night. It was still light, but he had decided that the rock-free area was the best they could hope for. Besides, all of them were unnaturally tired because of the altitude. I wonder how close we are to Tangi Boo, Rick asked as he sank to the ground. Just a few more days according to the map. 
We'll make it by the tenth, all right. Barring accidents, Rick said. Why do we have to go to Tangy Boo anyway? Why not set up right here? Professor Weiss came by in time to hear Scotty's question. Isn't that the same question Bobby asked? He inquired whimsically. As a matter of fact, Scotty, there are doubtless locations near the Tangy Boo where we could set up. It just happens we don't know any of them. But couldn't we just look for one? Scotty wanted to know. That would be rather unscientific, Weiss laughed. Could you imagine an expedition like this starting out without a definite destination? And then he grew serious. Actually, there are good reasons why we must reach Tengi Boo. One is that we have pre-calculated our angles of transmission. Another is that we know from previous research that Tengi Boo is electrically suited for the experiment. By that we mean that the ground has little tendency to absorb radio frequency signals. Scotty scratched his head. Well, that's nice, he remarked bewildered. Rick and Weiss laughed at his puzzlement. I don't know how to explain any less scientifically, Weiss said. Well, isn't it true, sir, Rick put in, that we could set up anywhere near Tangy Boo if we found a proper location? Yes, but why such? Weiss agreed. We know Tangy Boo will do. He moved towards Zircon, who was exploring rations in search of the evening meal. This radar business makes my head tired, Scotty complained, and the hiking to get there makes my legs tired. Same here, Rick agreed. They stretched out flat, too exhausted for the moment even to bother with food. A snore startled Rick and he sat up. Then was Chada, curled up in the long, white, padded coat he had acquired. He was dead to the world. It's not going to be any fun standing guard tonight, Rick said. I have the third watch. They had been rotating the guard, breaking the night into four parts. Tonight, Zircon would take the first hours, then Weiss. Weiss would awaken Rick, who would stand watch until it was time to waken Scotty. You get the best deal, Rick continued. You can sleep in one stretch, and when you get up, you won't have to go back to bed. Scotty grinned. Stop beefing. You'll get the last trick tomorrow night. Rick rose wearily. We'd better make chow and wake up Chada before he freezes to death. Sure is cold up here. They found Zircon and Weiss together, staring at a cleft in the mountain that towered overhead. I told you that we had forgotten something, Weiss said grumpily. Binoculars, one of the most obvious things. It was hard to think of everything, Zircon replied frostily. What is it? Rick asked. Zircon pointed. We saw a figure up there. It's gone now. A shiver went through Rick. The Watchers. We haven't seen them in days. Well, I would wager that they've seen us, Weiss muttered. But who are they? I don't know, Zircon answered. I've tried not to worry about it because they've made no move to harm us. I think Samid knows, but he certainly isn't talking. Gives me the creeps, Scotty said. It is uncomfortable, Weiss agreed. I hope they are nothing but curious Tibetans who are too shy to come into camp. That seems likely, Zircon nodded. But Chada described Mongols. Ancient Mongols. The sky was darkening now. Rick asked with false optimism. 
The bears must know we're being watched. They don't seem afraid. That's why I'm not especially worried, Sir Khan said. Well, let's make supper. I have the first watch, I believe. Immediately after supper, Rick crawled into his sleeping bag. It seemed as though he had hardly closed his eyes before Weiss was shaking him. Nearby, a mule snorted and a yak stirred restlessly. Rick crawled from his warm bed and pulled on his clothes, shivering in the cold. He took a blanket and wrapped it around his shoulders. Then he sat Indian fashion and tried to keep his head from nodding. Everything is quiet, the little professor said as he handed Rick the rifle. Silence in Tibet is like silence nowhere else, Rick thought. His imagination peopled the silence with hostile eyes that stared, watching his every move. He shivered again. Not entirely from the cold. Who were these watchers? A yak stood silhouetted against the sky, a low, strong bulk. Rick kept his eyes on the animal and tried to fight off sleep. The thin air made him drowsier than usual. He found his eyes drooping and he jerked upright, but sitting up straight was too tiring. He rested his head against a rock and felt the chill of it through the blanket. Suddenly, Rick was conscious of a funny buzzing sound in his head. His eyes felt parched. His neck had a crick in it. Had he been asleep? That wasn't possible. The yak hadn't moved. The moon was still in the same place. He pulled back his sleeve to look at his watch. He had left it in the sleeping bag. A stone rattled and he grabbed for his rifle. Fine guard you are, Scotty greeted him. I could have stolen the blanket right off you without any trouble. Go back to bed, Rick said. Go back to bed yourself, Scotty answered. I've had enough sleep. Anything doing? Not a thing. He handed Scotty the rifle and stood up. Around him were the sleeping forms of his friends. More distant were the huddled forms of the bearers, vague shapes in the darkness. The yak he had watched moaned softly. Bed is yours, he said to Scotty, and walked over to his sleeping bag. He inched into it, luxuriating in the warm fleece. The next thing he knew, Scotty was shouting. Rick, everybody, wake up! Rick jerked out of his sleeping bag, wide awake. Dawn was graying the rocks, and Scotty was running through the camp, through an empty camp. They're gone, he shouted. Rick saw that the animals were gone. Only the lone yak remained, still staked in the spot where Rick had seen it during his watch, tied there so that he would be fooled into thinking that the rest of the animals were still there. The shapes which he had taken to be sleeping bearers were rocks. Samid and the bearers had decamped with all the pack animals except the lone yak. The professors were out of their sleeping bags now, staring incredulously about. But how? Weiss began. Oh, look at me, Scotty moaned. They walked right off under my nose and I never heard or saw a thing. Wait a minute, Rick said. I thought I fell asleep last night while I was on guard. Now I'm sure of it. They did all this while I was on the job. Don't be too sure, Zircon contradicted gruffly. Might have happened to any of us. We'll probably never know. The point is, they've gone. The equipment, Wise choked. They've taken our equipment. No, sir, Scotty said. They haven't. 
They piled it over there, behind those boulders. Weiss ran to the equipment and checked it anxiously. It's all here, he announced with relief. Rick walked over to the remaining yak. It was staked next to a pile of ration cartons. They took most of the rations, but left us some. At least we won't starve for a little while. At the mention of the word, the others stopped short, full realization of their plight sinking in. Suddenly, Rick spun around remembering. Chada, exclaimed, and the Hindu boy was gone too. If they hurt that boy, I'll... Zircon began. There are no signs of a struggle, Rick interrupted. We didn't hear anything. Maybe he went voluntarily. If I ever get that big bulk of a Samid in my sights, Scotty said grimly, I'll blow him loose from his damn mustache. Zircon unfolded his maps and laid them on the ground. The others bent over them. We better have a council of war. There were no villages within easy range, but beyond the Tengibu Plateau, there was a small settlement. How far? Rick asked. Zircon estimated. Maybe two weeks? Depends on the trails. Rick swallowed. Two weeks there and two weeks back? That means the end of the experiment, Scotty said. No! Julius Weiss exclaimed. We cannot let this stop us. Let's be realistic, Julius. Consider. Heaven knows I don't like the idea any more than you do. But our principal goal now must be to save our own necks. Why couldn't we just set up the equipment right here and send a message? Because they won't be listening for us until the 10th, Rick reminded him. What's more, we could never transmit from here, Zircon added. A sweep of his arm indicated the high mountains close overhead. We're in a pocket. Attenuation would absorb our signal, and the mountains would blanket what little we did get out. Scotty looked blank, so Rick explained. Attenuation means that the ground would absorb the signal. That's why we have to get to Tangi Boo. It's high enough so that there's no chance of interference. Or somewhere similar. Any mountaintop would do, but most of these we couldn't climb ourselves, much less carry equipment. Julius Weiss had been standing quietly lost in thought, and now he spoke, his kindly face strained. Hobart is right, boys. Our first thought must be of ourselves. The experiment must wait. Rick knew what that announcement had cost the little scientist. Had Weiss been alone, he would have stayed with the equipment, no matter what the cost, but he felt a responsibility to the others. The boy tried to reassure him. It isn't giving up entirely, sir. We can get bearers and supplies and come back. Dad will keep trying for weeks if we don't answer on the 10th. Zircon spoke decisively. We'll start for the village at once. Each of us will make a pack of blankets and rations. The rest of the rations will go on the yak. Will it be safe to leave the equipment? Scotty asked. We have to leave it, Weiss said sadly, and pray it will be unharmed when we return. If it is, I will devote the rest of my life to finding Samid at Van Groot. It was the calm tone of his voice that made Rick stare. It left no doubt that the big scientist would do exactly that. As they lifted their improvised packs to their backs, Rick saw Weiss looking at the equipment, his eyes misty. 
Then the little scientist fell in step behind Zircon, who was leading the yak. For two years, the scientists had dreamed of this project. Now July 10th was almost here, and they wouldn't be set up to send the spindrift message. As they plodded along, Rick kept thinking of the Hindu boy. They must have kidnapped Chada, he said to Scotty. I don't think so. I think he went voluntarily, Scotty objected. But why? Maybe he saw what the end of this would be and figured he could pretend to play along until the bearers reached Nepal. That way he could organize a rescue party and come back for us. Well, that's got to be it. I hope some meat doesn't get wise, though. When he gets in a tight spot, he'll probably look in his world almanac and talk them out of it, Scotty said. Rick's thoughts returned to their own problems. Zircon had said that the village on the map was at least two weeks away. He hoped grimly that the food would hold out that long. His head was down and he almost bumped into Scotty ahead of him as the tiny procession came to a sudden halt. He looked up and stared straight into a wall of rock that blocked their path. Dead end, Zircon said hollowly. It seemed that the fates were spacing their misfortunes with diabolical timing. There was no way around that rock wall. Are you sure that we made the right turn back there? Weiss asked. Zircon consulted the map. So far as I can see, we're on the right trail. Rick bent back as far as he could and looked up at the steep walls, hemming them in, and suddenly he pointed. There's a path leading up the side of that wall. The scientists examined the mark on the rock, which Rick had optimistically called a path. Zircon shook his head. I, for one, could never climb that, he declared. And I wouldn't try, Weiss added. Maybe I could climb it and take a look around, Rick suggested. I might see a way out. Weiss looked again at the precipitous climb. It is too dangerous, Rick. I'll be all right, Rick assured him. Before the scientist could stop him, he had slipped off his pack and trotted toward the base of the cliff. Grabbing onto a jutting rock, he hauled himself up. Hazardous as the ascent had seemed from the ground, it proved to be even more treacherous when Rick found himself climbing. He tested each foothold before testing his weight on the treacherous shale. There was almost no incline to the rock wall, and one slip would be his last. He reached a shelf, turned, and looked down. The view brought a sick feeling into the pit of his stomach, and he decided not to look down again until he had reached the top. Inch by inch, he wormed his way up the face of the cliff and took a full 20 minutes to complete the dangerous climb. But at last, he hauled himself to the very top and stood on the small square of the summit. He leaned over and looked down, waving to the party below. Okay! He shouted, and his words echoed back from the mountains. How does it look? He heard Scotty call. That was good. They could talk to each other because of the acoustics of the rock walls. He saw instantly why they had come to a dead end in their supposedly correct route. A trail of broken rock twisted down the mountains and ended in a door-like piece of rock on the trail. There had been a landslide, and the huge rock had fallen directly across the trail. Because of his angle of observation, Scotty, Zircon, and Weiss were out of view, and he leaned outward slightly to call to them. As he leaned over, his foot slipped forward, and broken shale started to clatter down the cliff wall. 
It was a mere trickle at first, but as the weight of the shower rained against the cliff wall, Rick felt a rumble and saw to his horror that his slip had dislodged a great slab. It broke off, bounced out from the wall, and plummeted straight toward the spot where his friends were standing. Look out! He shouted. For a moment, he didn't dare look down or call to them. Then he heard Scotty's voice. Hello! Rick, are you all right? He turned cautiously and looked straight down. All three figures were looking up at him. He let out his breath with a relieved whoosh. Yes, he called back. I'll take a look. He could see clearly the country around him and the other side of the cliff. It was much less precipitous on the far side. And as he looked down, Rick saw another trail hugging the cliff on that side. He followed it with his eyes. Far, far down its course, he could see that it joined with the path upon which his friends now stood. In the other direction, it seemed to lead straight south the way they wanted to go. If the three men retraced their steps, they could pick this path up, he decided. It would be a simple matter of following the new one from there on. He measured the distance with his eyes and judged by the length of the narrow path that it would take them some time, maybe two hours, to reach that junction far below. He waved to them and prepared to descend along the path he had climbed. But he saw at a glance that the sliding shale had sheared away the path. Descending it now would be plain suicide. He pointed his predicament to the figures below and gave them directions to finding a new path. I'll climb down the other side and meet you at the big red boulder down there. It's shaped like a beehive. You can't miss it. They waved and started down the path, and Rick watched them disappear. Then he started to descend. Chapter 14. Strange Warriors Rick's look at the side of the cliff had been deceptive. The descent wasn't quite as easy as he had expected. The rock was jagged and cut his hands as he edged his way toward the path far below. He was forced to make detours of as much as a quarter mile in order to lower himself a few feet. At one point he came to a stretch of the cliff that was glassy smooth. There seemed to be no way around it, but again he detoured and made a few feet more progress. He looked at his hands and winced at the cuts in his palms, but he couldn't rest now. He saw that the sun was rushing toward the western horizon, and he certainly didn't want to be caught on the face of the cliff at night. The way looked easier for a short stretch, and he was making fast progress for a time. Then he lowered himself to a wide shelf jutting from the cliff, and as he did so, the rock that he had used as a brace broke off in his hand. There was no danger of his falling off the shelf, but when he looked up, he realized he couldn't retrace his steps, and the shelf stuck out too far to enable him to lower himself from it. He was trapped. He searched the wall frantically for some way out of his predicament. Above him it was smooth. Not a finger of rock existed for him to grasp, to retrace his steps. The shelf was strewn with rocks of all sizes, relics of the hundreds of landslides that had occurred in these mountains. Toward the end of the shelf was a big boulder. Rick grasped it and leaned far out. The wall beneath was steep, but there were lots of rocks sticking out. If only there was some way to lower himself to one of those rocks. He couldn't grasp the edge and drop, 
It was too crumbly. He fingered his belt, and a plan formed in his mind, if he dared to try it. But he had to. His fingers shook as he unbuckled the belt. When he took another look below, his heart sank. Even if he could moor the belt to something, it was still not long enough for him to reach safety. If only he could lengthen it. He stripped the light windbreaker from his back. He looked at the seams of the arms and tugged hard on them, then yanked with all his strength. The seams held. Thanking his lucky stars, he tied the ends of the sleeves together. He looped the belt around the knot of the sleeves and had a continuous length of sleeve and belt. If only the boulder were heavy enough, Rick prayed. He pushed at it, and though it teetered slightly, he couldn't move it. The boulder would serve him. He draped the body of the jacket around the boulder, as he would around the shoulders of a chair. Then he pulled on the belt, and the arms stuck straight out from the boulder. If only the arms were long enough to give him the extra foot or two he needed. Looking down from the shelf, he gulped, tested the improvised lowering rope, and slid toward the edge. At the first jerk of his weight upon the odd arrangement, the rock teetered, and terror shook Rick. But it teetered only an inch or two, and held. The belt was smooth, and he was glad he had wrapped it around his hand. Inch by inch, he lowered himself toward the outjutting rocks beneath the shelf. His toe plucked out at one of them. He was almost at the end of his lifeline now, and as he hung there, ready to let out the last few inches of the belt, he realized he would never have the strength to pull himself back up again. It was now or never. The end of the belt was reached, and he saw that he could not quite touch the rock toward which he had been aiming. He didn't dare drop the last few inches, for he knew he could never hold his balance on that miserably small rung of a rock. His palms were perspiring, and his head was just below the edge of the shelf. Then he spied another rock jutting out slightly beyond the one below him. It was about tabletop size, and it would need a swing to get to, but he had to try. He started his body swaying like a pendulum in toward the wall. It was taking the last ounce of strength from him, and he knew he couldn't hold on much longer. With a last convulsive jerk, he swung free. His feet landed squarely on the rock. He grabbed for the wall with his feet, knees, fingernails, and then collapsed against his face. For a full moment, Rick lay there, breathing heavily. Then he looked straight down at what had lain in store for him had he slipped. His friends would have never recognized him after those razor-edged rocks had finished catching him on his way down, if they had ever found him. He looked at his wristwatch and realized with a shock that four hours had elapsed since he had started to descend from the top of the cliff. It looked like another three to the ground. As he dropped to the path and looked up at the course he had followed, it seemed incredible he had made it, but there he was, safe sound. The red rendezvous rock agreed upon was off to his left, and he headed in that direction. Distances were deceptive, he soon discovered. From the top of the cliff, the red boulder had not seemed terribly far away, but as the minutes ticked off, he did not come to it, and he began to get panicky. He felt terribly alone, and once stopped and yelled at the top of his lungs. The echoes laughed back at him. He tried calling his friends' names, but there was no answer. No reason why there should be, he told himself. They were probably still looking for his path. What if they didn't find it? What if they got lost? 
What if he never saw them again? He tried not to think of the answers and hurried on as fast as the narrow pathway would permit. He looked down at the drop that fell away below him. He had forgotten what level ground was like. He would walk with a lean to his left for the rest of his days, he decided. And then he heard a sound. It was not mortal, he told himself. Probably an echo. But he stopped to listen. There it was again. And perhaps it was mortal. It was a laugh. But a strange laugh. Not Scotty's, and certainly no laugh like that had ever come from Weiss or Zircon. It was low and throaty. And if a laugh could be cruel, this one was cruel. He was so startled he couldn't tell from which direction the sound had come. And he started running one way and then stopped and headed the other in panic. Why should he be frightened? Rick asked himself. If anybody was nearby, he wanted to see him, to ask his aid. But some instinct raised the hair on the nape of his neck, and he knew that he must dodge this voice at all costs. He looked wildly around, searching for a hiding place. Far ahead, he saw a hole in the wall about six feet up. But what if the voice were coming from that direction? He had to chance it, and he ran. The voice was coming from this direction, and now he heard more than one. He heard them coming closer, and he knew that only a miracle would keep him from being seen. They were just around the curve that shielded him from them. His hands grabbed for the rocks that seemed placed beneath the hole like ladder rungs, and faster than he would have believed possibly, hauled himself up toward the hole and into it. And then, four of the strangest-looking men he'd ever seen in his life came into view below him. They were short, and their heads were shaven. They wore leather armor and helmets, and each carried a spear tipped with some coppery metal. They had wide, cruel mouths, and their faces were yellow and oily, and their eyes slanted. They reminded Rick of something he had once seen in a book, warriors of another age. And then one of them reached for the rock below Rick's hiding place, and he realized with horror that the men were about to enter the very hole into which he had fled. He stared about him in the darkness and knew from the draft that the niche was bigger than he had suspected when he looked at it from outside. He could hear even his breath echoing in its confinement, and he plunged into the darkness. The light from the entrance helped him find his way for a short distance, but soon he had to resort to his sense of touch to feel for his way along the walls. As long as he moved, he was staying ahead of these strange men. Instinct told him not to stop moving. Night had never been darker than the trap in which he found himself. It seemed to push against him, and then the wall fell off from his hand, and he found himself groping for it in the dark. Must be a hole in the wall, he thought, and started crawling toward it. It was a narrow niche in the cave that cupped off from the main passage. If the strange warriors were without torches, he might escape detection. He crouched there, digging his fingers into his thighs, listening to the footsteps coming closer and closer. Then there was the smell of rancid oil next to him, and a heavy foot inches from his body, and he recoiled. The other men were close behind, but they too passed, and he heard them shuffling ahead. Then the sound faded in the darkness. When he considered it safe, he rose to his feet and made ready to retrace his steps to the path outside. But something made him stop. Those men, where were they going? They had seemed very familiar with this cave, if it was a cave, 
It could be a passageway, but to where? Rick stood uncertainly in the dark. If those men were going towards civilization, it would be worth taking the chance of following them and finding out if that civilization could be of help to him. Scotty, Zircon, and Weiss could wait for him at the rendezvous. Besides, if they were anywhere nearby, they would have heard his shouts. He felt for the wall again and started inching his way along the inky darkness. Suddenly he saw a sliver of light, and as he turned a curve in the passageway, it turned to bright sunshine. Though there was no sound from the leather-armored warriors, Rick crept cautiously toward the source of the light. He came out upon a narrow ledge. Rude stone stairs dropped away below him. They twisted and turned down the face of a long mountain slope, and there at the foot of the steps was the most unbelievable sight Rick had ever seen. A lush green valley spread before his eyes. Studying it were obelisks and towers of a thousand hues, cultivated fields and houses that dotted the valley in neat rows made a patchwork of exquisite beauty. And then he realized who the men were that he had seen and what he had stumbled on. He heard again the words of Zircon when Chada had spoken of seeing the men who had been tracking them many days ago. The men Chada saw had been dressed in the same attire as those Rick had seen. They were Mongols. Zircon had said that, but of a kind considered dead for hundreds of years. But they weren't dead. Their city stretched before him. A lost city of the ancient Mongols. <laughs>